Do you remember this? We'll do whatever it takes in order to make sure that our farmers can continue to run successful businesses and that food supplies can continue to be healthy. DEFRA Secretary Michael Gove speaking after a drought summit held in London back on August the 1st. Five weeks on, has anything actually happened? The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. The aim of that drought summit back at the start of August was to help those suffering from the summer's hot, dry weather. Farmers such as the ones we've featured here on the programme over recent months. Well, here we are, the second week of September, and not a lot's happened. The politicians went on holiday, uh, and the national media, who were all over the summit, you might remember, back in August, saw it had started to rain, and so uh, they simply moved on. Uh, Well, this week, Wednesday to be exact, it's back British Farming Day with uh, further lobbying expected at Parliament. It's a timely event as well, with the Agriculture Bill about to go before the House. So, what can we expect from the Bill? Uh, Danny O'Shea is from the NFU. Danny, first of all, on the August Drought Summit, lots of good words at the time, but nothing really's happened, has it yet? Um, Well, what's happened on our side of things is that we've contacted um, our members and they're reporting a lot of problems in the industry. So about 78% of farmers who use forage, for example, um, expect to see some sort of shortfall in reserves. Um, And alarmingly, 90% of people growing spring crops are saying that they're growing poorer than expected. So the drought is still having and will have a massive effect on the industry. We heard kind words from Michael Gove at the end of the the summit back on August the 1st, but since then, I don't know, I know the politicians have been on holiday, but it feels like not a lot has happened since, certainly at political level. Yeah, I mean, in Scotland and Wales and across Europe, uh, they seem to be putting in specific measures to assist farm businesses. Uh, but in England, it seems to be a little bit different. So we had our agricultural drought summit last month. Michael Gove promised to do whatever it takes to make sure farmers uh, can continue to run successful businesses, which are great words. Um, but we do need to see a bit of action now. Um, and our top priority is asking him to contact the EU and ask that they're flexible on cap greening rules, um, specifically um, allowing farmers to cut and graze certain areas that they're typically not allowed to, and that'll help with feedstock and sort of minimise minimise uh, financial impact on businesses. They're quite easy measures, aren't they? But it just seems to have almost been forgotten. It started raining again, the national media moved on, everybody else thought, oh, it's gone away, the drought now, hasn't it? But of course, it is a continuing problem and will be right the way through to next year, won't it? Exactly, yeah. So as I touched on at the start, um, yeah, it's going to be a continuing issue and we need Michael Gove to step up to those words that he put put at the agricultural drought and, you know, really step up to the mark and help the industry. Now, of course, this coming Wednesday is back British Farming uh, Day as well. Um, we'll see Prime Minister's questions, for example, those uh, wheat pin badges being uh, being worn, hopefully, by uh, by MPs. What's the aim behind that? Yeah, so it's just it's a symbolic gesture, really, um, an opportunity in PMQs um, to to pledge support or show support for British farming. There's a physical pledge that they can do on the day. Um, and interestingly, on the day as well, uh, for the first time ever, we've got a back British farming menu serving British food across all uh, canteens across Palace of Westminster. So it's a really positive day just for MPs to show that they support British farming. And it is important, isn't it, this this constant lobbying at the moment of politicians, not only because of the drought, but also uh, the events happening next March with uh, with obviously Brexit looming. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just agriculture; it's across every different industry. We need to keep MPs on their toes and focused on the industries that matter, um, because we need a UK that's strong going forward. 
We're told there's an agriculture bill coming. We thought it might come before the summer recess, but uh, things change, what with checkers and all that. Um, but we're told certainly towards the end of, of this month, early October, we will get that, that agriculture bill. What's the NFU's hopes within it? So, yeah, the purpose of the bill is to ensure we have an effective system in place to support farmers or UK farmers um, and protect our, nat- our natural environment post-Brexit. I mean, we, we want to, we've, got a, we've got quite a few uh, priorities, but the ones that stand out to me are to value and protect our standards, to strengthen the position of farmers in the supply chain, um, reduce red tape. And the key one for me is to maintain a level playing field. And we want to see what this bill does before we comment any more. Um, we need to see it first and then we can make con- comment. But I suppose the, the big thing for us is that we want food production to be at the heart of UK farming and we want any bill going forward to consider that. Well, we'll find out soon and probably we'll speak again once the bill has been uh, revealed, Danny. (laughs) Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Danny O'Shea from the NFU. Now, back British Farming Day is this coming Wednesday. If you watch Prime Minister's Questions, you'll see a number of MPs, maybe even the Prime Minister herself, wearing a wheat pin badge. Now you know why. Uh, the government did make one announcement this week. The DEFRA Secretary and the Home Secretary confirmed that farmers will be able to recruit non-EU migrants on temporary visas after Brexit to help ease labour shortages. The pilot scheme uh, for some 2,500 workers will run from next spring until the end of 2020, when robotics and automation will take over much of the roles. Or at least, that's the hope. Uh, Matt Naylor is on the phone. Matt, you're MD of Naylor's Flowers, and you've been facing issues, really, since the Brexit vote two years ago, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, we've been uh, OK, but we realised um, that, that it would be a big issue, because most of the people doing manual tasks in the horticultural industry were born abroad. Uh, most of the people who work for us now live locally uh, and are resident and pay their taxes and, uh, you know, are part of the workforce. But we do have about 80 um, Romanians who come over just for the daffodil season during March at the moment when we're really busy. And you've put in accommodation, haven't you, to try and uh, combat the issue, to try and help the problem, make it more attractive to come and, and live and work in the area? That was something that we did. Well, we put in for planning consent ah, okay, to... Right accommodate people but then at the same time we started a labour agency of our own and uh, we were when we by doing that we were able to pay slightly higher wages and that um, that meant that we managed to retain everybody that we wished to so we didn't need to go ahead uh, and accommodate anybody right okay i see i see what what do you make of the proposal then the 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 government idea i mean 2500 is is that far enough it's not many people um, but as, as it says, it's a pilot, and I think that it acknowledges that uh, we do need um, people to come in and do these jobs. It will inevitably in 20 years' time, a lot of these jobs will be mechanised. But at the moment, that technology just isn't there. We can't buy that. We wouldn't know how to begin mechanising tasks like cropping daffodils or picking strawberries. That's still in its infancy, really. But you think that's where you're going to have to end up? Automation is is going to be the future? Uh, ultimately, that, uh, yeah, is, is relatively easy to um, imagine it being like that in the future. But in the short term, um, yeah, I think there's, there is this challenge around how do we get the work done now. So what they're proposing, these are non-EU countries uh, that, um, that they're proposing we, we take these people from. So it'll be interesting to see... Uh, which nationalities 
uh, that are attracted, um, you know, by by this this new migrant worker scheme. Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, where do you think they might? come from obviously it fluctuates and you know more recently we have seen eastern europeans over in, in this part of the world that is changing where do you think they might come from in which country are the people saying i want to go work near spalding uh i'm guessing that it'll be countries where there's higher unemployment and where the economy isn't as developed you would assume that would be the case um so i guess it'll still be uh, out in that direction towards Russia, some of those uh, non-EU uh, former Russian countries would be my guess, but I, I'm not an expert in this. And uh, as I say, we're not actually looking as a business. We're not actually looking to recruit at the moment. Your business not looking, as you say. Other, others are. I mean, it is essential, these workers, to, to businesses, uh, not necessarily yours, as you say, but similar to yours, isn't it? And the vegetable and fruit growers particularly. Yeah, it's. Um, I think culturally, uh, the UK is now a long way removed from agriculture. Most people are several generations away from a time when their family worked in agriculture. Whereas if you go to somewhere like Eastern Europe, most people grew up on the farm. They're culturally quite used to working with crops and working outdoors. So a lot of people think they're coming over here purely for economic reasons and that's partly true because the wages are, are usually higher than, than where they've come from but also it's work that they're um, quite familiar with and so that makes it a lot easier it wouldn't be very easy for us to recruit people uh, from a city to come to south lincolnshire and uh, crop things in a field because that's such an alien environment to them and how have things been? You know, we had the hot dry uh, weather um, earlier in the year we've had rain since has it been a good year for for flowers well, i'm a farmer so my job is to moan about the weather whatever it does <laughs> very uh, true we always have some weather uh and so yeah so it's been sunny so it was good for some flowers um it hasn't been yeah let's just say there have been certain times when i wish that i was producing ice cream and not flowers but uh but yeah we uh, we'll see how next year goes instead Overall, then, not a bad year for nailers. Well, we're still here, but, yeah, a challenging one. But I think that what, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Thanks for that. Matt Naylor, uh, MD of Naylor's Flowers. Last week, we introduced you to our newest contributor, Kelly Hewson fisher from Anglian Water. She's going to be here, if you remember, fortnightly to update us on the latest water quality across the region. So, uh, Kelly, what's the news this week? Good morning. I'm going to give an overview of what I've observed over the last week in the field and how this relates to the water quality sampling that Anglian Water do regularly across the region. Whilst recent dry weather has hindered slug activity for many across Lincolnshire and some planned slug pellet applications have not been made, reports from Rutland are that there has been a surprising level of slug presence found, leading to applications of slug pellets where oilseed rape has been drilled. Around the reservoir, these applications have been of ferric phosphate slug pellets and not those containing metaldehyde. Metaldehyde levels have remained low across the counties and I suspect metaldehyde is currently being kept on the field. However, with a rainfall event, this could change. Sticking with oilseed rape, in some situations, pre-emergence herbicides were not applied to rape crops before they established as the soils were too dry. As we get moisture, herbicides will be applied as the crop emerges. And the actives metazoclor, dimethanamide P, quinmorac are often seen at high levels. These would be in products such as springbok and elk. 
Where you are attempting to create stale seedbeds and control weeds using glyphosate, levels of glyphosate have increased. Glyphosate is effectively removed within the water treatment process using ozone. There are lots of advantages to using ozone. It's an excellent disinfectant and is the most popular treatment used. It's actually a naturally occurring substance and when utilised for water purification purposes, it does immediately degrade back to oxygen, therefore leaving no trace. With regard to groundwaters, nitrates lost from applications of inorganic fertilisers, bagged fert and organic fertilisers, such as digestate and manures, make their way into groundwater sources. Farmers are looking at the options of growing cover crops in this autumn winter period to minimise losses of nitrates. One farmer I visited last week has looked at leaving rape volunteers until the wheat will be drilled to ensure that no bare soil is present and to support minimising nitrate losses. And I'll be keeping an eye on this. Um, as a reminder, please check if your land is in a surface water or groundwater safeguard zone by using the What's in Your Backyard website. Thank you. And I'll be back in a fortnight with another water quality update. I hope Love Lamb Week went well for you. If you missed our preview of it, you'll find previous editions of the programme on the uh, podcast page of our website and our mobile app. Newark Markets reported not a good week for lamb, an amazing week, their words. They say the overall average levelled very close to the 200 pence mark and have praised vendors for the quality of the sheep, uh, presenting them well finished in what's been the most difficult summer in living memory. Apparently, pen after pen of lambs were going for over £100 per head, rising to £125 per head from a pen of Beltex lambs from Charlotte Bowser, which also topped the pence per kilo at 281 pence. And uh, I know other livestock markets around the country have been reporting good weeks as well. So uh, a positive way to end Love Lamb Week. Have we positive news on agronomy? Earlier we discussed Wednesday's Back British Farming Day. Our agronomist Sean Sparley certainly backing the day aren't you Sean? Yes good morning Sean I couldn't agree more Uh, every day should be backing farming actually 365 days a year for me and there is a gulf of ignorance and I mean that in the nicest possible way between those of us involved in farming who understand how vital it is and how important it is to our survival and those who have no contact and apart from Emmerdale but no contact with agriculture whatsoever other than going to the shop and buying food and just it's a given that that food will be there for them without agriculture there is no food and when you think the surface of the earth there's just three percent of the surface of the earth which is capable of producing food and that's food for the seven billion people who live here and the tens of billions of animals that we have to feed in order to feed the people three percent of the earth's surface the rest of it 75 percent of it is taken up with the oceans and the seas and then you've got the north pole the south pole mountain ranges glaciers deserts towns cities roads all of those things that means we can't grow any food on that land at all and then there is also the land that couldn't physically grow it so mountainous rocky shallow soils that can't grow or support life in the way we need it to in order to grow food so three percent of the world's surface and that's finite that isn't getting any bigger it's not getting any better by 2050 they're talking about there being 10 billion people on the surface of the earth we have to find a way of feeding those people we know at the moment seven billion people we can feed all of those people we produce in enough food to do that now the problem is the logistics of getting that food to those people that's the problem that we've got to solve over the coming years Um, but also with progressive farmers progressive agriculture we're finding better ways to produce more food on the same area of land safe productive affordable food 
that's what farming's all about. That's why people need to get behind agriculture and understand how vital it is for our survival. We said in last week's programme that we were starting to see an increase in levels of both slugs and cabbage stem flea beetle in oilseed ray. Well, by Monday of this week, the damage from cabbage stem flea beetle had gone up a notch, and I excuse the pun for that, but the damage was everywhere, and it was rife. Um, now, we've started spraying for cabbage stem flea beetle this week, and there's a few things we need to touch on. Firstly, Lambda-Cyhalothrin, pyrethroid. You have a seven-day interval between applications on oilseed rate with Lambda. 50 millilitres per hectare is the rate for cabbage stem flea beetle control. There is a 75 millilitre rate, but that's for flea beetle, which is a spring pest, and for aphids, but... 50 millilitres per hectare is your rate. You can add a non-ionic surfactant, which spreads it a lot thinner and helps with the contact. But personally, it's the insecticide which is doing the job on the cabbage stem flea beetle, not the wetter. So just be careful. I've never really seen a, a, a difference in including it or not including it. If you are spraying for cabbage stem flea beetle in good conditions, and by that I mean not high light intensity, not windy conditions, um, not in hot conditions. So if the flea beetles are active they tend to be active in lower light intensity calmer conditions and cooler conditions um, so if you go out at night with a torch you will see just how many there are that may well be the right time to spray them but the key is when they are active and when you can physically contact them if you've sprayed them you know that you've hit them but you're not killing them there is little point going back in with another pyrethroid because the chances are they're already resistant to that pyrethroid all that will serve to do is build up resistance in the cabinet stem flea beetle population and make the problem worse. Now your threshold for treatment if you've got a cotyledon crop that's just pricking through the ground and it's getting absolutely decimated by flea beetle cabbage stem flea beetle, I beg your pardon, then you have to go out and you have to treat that. If you've got a crop which is up to two true leaves, your threshold for damage is when 25% of that plant is being damaged. If it's up to four leaves, then it's when 50% of that plant is being damaged. And try not to keep spraying the same damage. It doesn't heal. The damage that you see on the leaves doesn't heal so it's important you check the newer leaves to see if there's any damage on those and it's when they're targeting the growing point those newly emerging leaves that they do the most significant damage so this is a worry period now from cotyledon up to four leaves so make sure you're doing the job properly make sure you're doing the job correctly and make sure you're doing the job legally while i'm on rape by the way slugs they are still causing a problem they're moving up within the profile so you need to be aware of those put your traps out bait them see if you can find them and don't just treat whole areas of fields treat the worst areas of these fields if you can and keep a record and remember your restrictions are 210 grams of active ingredient that's seven kilos of a three percent product between the first of august and the end of december you do of course have ferrous phosphate which you should only be using on the outsides of fields keep away from all water courses and you have a 10 metre restriction anyway, buffer zone restriction on metaldehyde against any water course. And it just makes sense to do ferrous phosphate all around the outside because it doesn't have the issue. Um, anybody who's thinking about drilling winter wheat at the moment, I think you're absolutely crackers. There'll be plenty of time for that going forward. If you go drilling wheat now, you'll find yourself battling disease all through the season. Yeah, it's interesting out there. All seed rapes causing the most scratching of heads that I've known for many many years and there's more damage this year than I think I have ever seen before so be on your metal make sure you're doing the job safely and legally and as well as you can possibly do it and uh, have a lovely week <laughs> thanks Sean Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services on to grain then Rebecca Pierce has the latest from Open Field this week hello Rebecca 
Good morning, Sean. What's happening with the grain markets? Another interesting week in the grain trade this week. However, at present, the commodity news wires seem to bring nothing but bearish news. And UK wheat has followed the likes of the US and the EU markets trading lower as the weeks progressed. London November wheat futures closed on Thursday down near £7 a tonne from the beginning of the week. And this has had an effect on values at the farm gate. The US markets were closed on Monday and all eyes were on Moscow and will they, won't they impose export restrictions. Whilst the exporters will continue to supply their export data to the Russian government and government monitoring of the situation will continue, at present no export restrictions have been put in place which completely reverses what was indicated only a week ago and is partly the reason both US and EU wheat futures fell early in the week. There's always going to be a big question mark over Russia and in honesty, will we ever really know what's going on? Everyone has their own idea of what the Russian supply and demand really is. But until the plug is pulled on wheat exports, US wheat futures could well continue to come under pressure. The market will now await the latest USDA report, which is due this week, and also news from Australia. Closer to home this week and the EU Commission cut UK wheat production to circa 13.5 million tonnes. This is lower than previous estimates, which was circa 14 million tonnes, and seems supportive to the UK wheat market. However, yesterday's announcement from a major consumer of UK wheat proposing to cease production was seen as a major blow to the marketplace. Whilst the market had known for some time the plant would be shutting down in some form or other, the announcement on the company's website referencing consultation periods beginning with employees suggested a more permanent closure and will certainly add wheat to our balance sheet. We already knew of north of 100,000 tonnes of imported wheat destined for the north of England coming over the next few months to help supply these ethanol plants. So it is a question of when it arrives at UK ports now, where will it go? There's still premiums for the likes of Group 1 Milling Wheat and Soft Wheat, so make sure you speak to your local open field farm business manager to get some samples if you haven't done already. Interestingly, the UK feed barley market seems to be holding its own, particularly in my area. Values at the farm gate are relatively unchanged on the week, despite the fall on the wheat market. There's still attractive premiums for lower nitrogen parcels of spring barley, so it's definitely worth making sure you've had samples taken. I've started to see samples of beans this week and the quality is very mixed. The reports I'm hearing on yield also aren't great, which should support feed values which are currently trading circa £190 to £195 a tonne. Let's have a look at prices now. September feed wheat is trading around £168 to £170 a tonne, with a pound per tonne per month carry going forward. Looking ahead to harvest 19 and wheat values are circa 148 to 154 pounds a tonne with November 19 prices around 155 to 160 pounds a tonne. The premiums for group one milling wheat are circa 12 to 15 pounds a tonne. Feed barley prices are currently 162 to 165 pounds a ton for September, and early indications for harvest 2019 are around 135 to 140 pounds a ton. The oilseed rate market has been relatively unchanged over the past few weeks, and values for September are still trading between 320 and 324 pounds a ton, with values edging towards 330 pounds a ton for the new year. Thank you, Rebecca Pierce from Open Field. Let's have a look at what the weather has in store for us this week. The farming programme five-day forecast. 
It looks like it will be warming up temporarily to say we're into the second week of September. Today we're looking at highs of 20. Might be a shower in places. It should be mostly dry. That wind more from the southwest, 15 to 25 miles an hour. Cloudy overnight tonight, but dry, lows of 12. The wind from the west-southwest at about 10 miles an hour. And then tomorrow we're looking at highs again of around 20. Maybe a shower in places, but mostly dry. The wind from the southwest again, 15 to 25 miles an hour. Monday into Tuesday, quite a humid night actually. We're looking at lows of around 16. The wind blowing from the southwest, bringing that hot air, 15, maybe 30 miles an hour for a time to start Tuesday. And then a band of heavy rain. In fact, it's going to be quite a wet Tuesday by the looks of things. Uh, wind barely noticeable. Where it is blowing is from the west-southwest, uh, looking at highs of around 19 Celsius despite the rain. It should dry out by Wednesday, where we're looking at overnight lows of around 11 Celsius. The wind picking up a little bit from the west-northwest at about 5 miles an hour. And then once that rain's gone, it should be a sunny middle of the week. 18 the high, the wind continuing from the west between 5 and 10 miles an hour. And that's the forecast. Next week, not the farmers, but the product that's been helping breaking records this harvest despite the summer conditions. That's next week. Our last word this week, though, goes to Liz Hurley. Yes, the uh, Austin Powers Four Wedding star who posted on social media this week a photo of her holding some jam and a bag of silver spoon. Uh, She told her followers that she's made 45 pots of jam so far this year using a homegrown fruit. She added that she always uses English sugar made from sugar beets from East Anglia. Good to know. Liz, and uh, if you've a jar going spare, do get in touch. If that jam arrives, I will let you know on the programme next week. Until then, have a good week.